You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Church in Huntsville, Ontario. Harvest Church is a community that exists to love God, love people, and make disciples of Jesus Christ for the glory of God. For more information about our church, visit us online at myharvestchurch.ca. Good morning, church. (laughs) So glad that you can be here this morning. My name is Jesse. I'm the kids director here at Harvest, and it's my pleasure and privilege again to bring you God's word, and and it is a pleasure and it is a privilege, uh, and I'm just so excited for us to get into what God has prepared for us this morning. Just as an aside, Eric and I, or Eric and Kai, we don't get together and plan every single song for how that worship is going to interact with the message. That's all the Lord's doing. And every one of those songs this morning, it really speaks to the passage that we have this morning. So turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3. We're going to continue on in our sermon series in the book of John. And I've titled this sermon, Christ Above All. It's my hope today that we leave this building and this gathering with a renewed sense of our need for Jesus and for him to be exalted in our lives. When I was asked to preach, I was given a couple of dates, and so I picked November 5th, which is today. And it just so happens that this passage follows up one of the most familiar verses in all of Scripture. And I thought, boy, oh boy, how am I going to follow up John 3.16? That thing kind of speaks for itself. And after reading this passage, I would hope that our eyes are more fixed on the person of Jesus, that our hearts are more in love with the majesty of Jesus, that our minds are more captivated by the glory of Jesus, and our lives are more inclined to serve Jesus because he deserves it. That's my goal for this morning. Because he deserves our attention. He deserves our focus, our time, our energy, our love, our devotion. He alone is deserving of all of that. My hope is also that for some of you here, you feel the conviction of needing to surrender your life to Jesus. Or if you would consider yourself a Christ follower, that you would feel the conviction of needing to surrender more of your life to Jesus. So before we read from God's word, I just want to pray for all of that, if that's okay. I want our hearts to be in line with God's word this morning. And I'm going to pray that God would change our hearts and that he would renew in us a desire to surrender to him. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to read your word. What a privilege it is to gather and read your word together. Holy Spirit, fill us with the knowledge and the wisdom that we need to understand what you are telling us this morning. I pray, God, that you would be lifted high, that your name would be exalted. Jesus, thank you for the work that you have done, and we get to glorify you for it. And as we read about you this morning, I pray that our hearts would be filled with joy, that we would look to you as the only true source of satisfaction in our life. Thank you, God, for this morning. We pray a blessing on this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take a look. Let's start in verse 22. And we're gonna go all the way to the end of the chapter. 
John 3, verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives a spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Man, there's a lot in there. In this passage, Jesus and his disciples are continuing on from Jerusalem to the Judean countryside, where we see him and his disciples calling people to repentance and baptizing them. What's neat uh, is of all four of the Gospels, this is the only one to mention Jesus baptizing. I just thought that was very neat. And even at the beginning of chapter four that we'll talk about uh, in the week or two to come, uh, it mentions in verse two that Jesus doesn't actually do the baptizing. It's his disciples who do the baptizing, uh, although he was there to oversee it. And we're not sure why Jesus didn't himself baptize people. But I, could you imagine if someone was baptized by a mere disciple and another was baptized by Jesus himself, knowing the human heart, right? <laughs> I can imagine the propensity to elevate that particular baptism above the rest. Oh, uh, oh, you were baptized by Bartholomew, eh? Well, me? No, no problem. I was just baptized by Jesus. <laughs> I, just, I could just see that happening. So that's probably one of the reasons why. Bible isn't very specific on that, but uh, instead Jesus would send us a different baptism, right? He promised the baptism of the Holy Spirit, as mentioned in passages like John 1, 33, and then later on in Acts 1, verse 5. In fact, in allowing his disciples to perform the baptisms, Jesus is setting himself apart from John the Baptist, showing himself to be greater 
than John. And this is what sets the scene for the discussion between John and his disciples. In verse 26, his disciples are concerned about the number of people going to Jesus to get baptized rather than coming to John. They're concerned that John's ministry maybe won't have the same reach that it used to or that it'll have the same impact that it's had in the past. They're concerned that Jesus is going to become more popular than John. They're concerned that John is slowly moving into irrelevancy. And what we're going to see, what we've already read, is that John is perfectly fine with that happening. Although John had a great influence, right? His, his followers would call him teacher. They'd call him the name rabbi because they considered him to be a great teacher. At every instance, John would deflect the praise from his people and point it to Jesus. If we look back at John chapter 1, there's a lot of references to that. John 1 verse 20, when asked, who are you? John said, I am not the Christ. And then the next day in John 1 29, he said, pointing to Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then the next day after that in John 1 36, he sees Jesus again and says, behold the Lamb of God. And it's at that point that a couple of his disciples, John's disciples, left him and started following Jesus. And now in chapter 3, starting in verse 27, John reminds his followers what he has been saying about Jesus the whole time. That Jesus is the reason for John's ministry. He's the reason John is going around baptizing people and calling them to repentance. He is the person that John has been teaching about. Jesus is the Messiah that has come into the world to save his people from their sins. He's the Emmanuel spoken of in Isaiah. You see, sometimes we can get so caught up in just doing ministry. There's a lot of people in this room who serve at this church, and thank you for serving. There's, a, there's deacons here, elders, staff. Sometimes we can forget why we serve, the end goal of our efforts, which is what? To make Jesus Christ known and to glorify him. That's it. Everything we do should serve that purpose. So before I continue with this message any further, let me be very clear as to why I am up here right now. I don't want to be up here speaking to tickle your ears. I don't want to be up here to make myself known. I want to communicate to you the authority and the supremacy and the glory of Jesus Christ and our need for him in our lives, right? I always consider it an honor to speak in front of my church community and to handle God's word rightly but it is with the strict intention to have us gaze upon the work of Jesus, to focus our minds on the word of God, and to leave here more focused on serving and following him. So, let's keep going. John reminds his disciples in verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. You see, the one great thing about John the Baptist and Jesus, the one thing that they have in common, is that their ministries on earth 
were heaven-ordained ministries. Right? John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. John recognizes this. He acknowledges that he has got something special. It's a mission from God. But he knows his role. He knows his place in the grand scheme of things. He launches into this awesome analogy of a wedding, comparing Jesus to the groom and himself as his best friend. So let's, let's get our minds back to the last wedding that you were at, okay? I love weddings. <laughs> and who's the focus of the wedding? The bride and the groom, right? The entire hour or half hour or five hours ugh, of them dedicated to coming together as husband and wife. And so the entire ceremony is designed to have your eyes fixed on those two people. Even how the bridesmaids and the groomsmen, they stand at the front and they kind of form that V shape. So your eyes are really centered on the bride and the groom themselves, right in the center. I've had the privilege in this last year or so to officiate uh, three or four weddings. And I love it. I love weddings. I love how beautiful they are and how intentional they are. Uh, I especially love the ones that are intentionally designed to glorify God through marriage. Uh, but the, the thing that makes me most uncomfortable is actually standing right there, right in the middle of the stage with the bride and the groom there. It's not about the officiant. It's about the bride and the groom. And so I get John when he says that he wants to step aside and have these two there. The last thing I want to do is be a part of that you may kiss the bride <laughs> scene. So I got to step out of the way uh, and make sure the pictures are good because I don't want to be a part of that. <laughs> And in a similar way that you don't want your crazy relative at a wedding making a scene, John deflects the attention from his influence and points his disciples to Jesus. He secedes to Jesus' influence in his ministry, and he does so joyfully. Look at that, verse 29. The one who has the bridegroom, bride is the bridegroom, the friend is the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Man, what a line, eh? He must increase, but I must decrease. You see, John understands that all he has has been given to him from heaven. Everything he's got. He understands that his life's work is to usher in the Messiah and cheer him on. And in just a short amount of time, John will meet the end of his life in jail. He will be beheaded for his boldness. And until that point, while he's in jail, he is cheering on Jesus, knowing that the greater work is being done. In fact, I believe this is the last point at which we hear about John the Baptist in the book of John. For now, he humbly steps out of the way to let Jesus take over. In fact, he sees it as a, as a sort of mission accomplished, where he rejoices in Jesus getting all the attention and the affection, where he celebrates when his disciples leave to follow Jesus. And for the rest of the chapter... The author focuses on the supremacy and the primacy of Jesus. 
there's a shift in tone here, and it really focuses all on Jesus. It's a really great, meaty section, so we're going to spend the rest of our message talking about it. See, we are told that Jesus is above all, and that he comes from heaven, as opposed to John, who is from earth. For this reason, although even both men were called rabbi by their followers, there is a big difference between the teachings of John and the teachings of Jesus. As a Christ follower, you're like, duh, I know that. But I really want you to soak in that for a couple of minutes because it matters. It matters with where our world is at right now. It's because of this that world philosophies and worldviews crumble under their own foundation. They come from earth, they belong to the earth, and they speak in an earthly way. One of my favorite pastimes is to look up debate videos on YouTube and to listen to them in the background when I'm doing a task. I tend to listen to debates among Christians because I find that they're more evenly matched. Uh, their worldviews are fundamentally the same, right? They both believe in the existence of a God who created everything, a God who imparted wisdom to us through his word and has created all of us to bear his image. So there's a fundamental, even playing field when these two people have a debate. And so all of their debates focus on God and theology, the finer points of Christianity, like the role of grace in our lives, or uh, the nature of the Trinity, or whether or not we can lose our salvation, which I believe scripturally we cannot. But it's fun to listen to these debates to see where their points are at. But once in a while, I will listen to a Christian debate an atheist. An atheist is someone who believes that there is no God. Or they'll debate an agnostic, someone who claims that we can't be sure whether or not there is a God. There's a little bit of a difference there. Although entertaining and educational, these debates often come down to the same thing. The atheist or agnostic fundamentally loses the debate because they have no means of supporting their argument of objective morality. What do I mean by that? I mean, they cannot prove that morality, apart from God, is universal with the same rules that apply across the world. Someone who rejects God must therefore accept that we've come to exist by some other means, and since aliens is still too weird to believe... And it really doesn't answer the larger question of where did the aliens come from. Most will claim that we came from nothing. Well, actually, they'll claim that we started out as a random clump of DNA in an ooze somewhere on Earth billions of years ago. It's called the Oparin Haldane theory. And here's a quote from Britannica.com. I don't want to mess it up. Oparin Haldane theory idea that organic molecules could be formed from abiogenic materials in the presence of an external energy source, for example, ultraviolet radiation, and that Earth's primitive atmosphere was reduced or was reducing, having very low amounts of free oxygen and contained ammonia and water vapor, among other gases. So basically, they theorize that life began as molecules that were exposed to high levels of radiation, which to me just sounds like every superhero origin from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And they believe that it happened randomly, by chance, void of design. 
What does this worldview ultimately mean for us as a human race? Well, it definitely doesn't account for objective morality. If we're all just happy little accidents, then what claim do any of us have on what's right and what's wrong? What if what I feel doesn't align with your feeling of what's wrong? What if believing in murder is something that is fundamentally wrong is different than a society's belief in murder as fundamentally right? Who's right? And this is the kind of thinking that has permeated our culture now. No one seems to have the right to call out evil behavior since morality is seemingly subjective. It depends on the person. This is for sure the teaching that they have in universities right now, and it was the same teaching back in 2007 when I was in university. You see, the problem is that it crumbles under its own foundation. Ultimately, anyone who believes firmly in subjective morality would themselves not want to be on the receiving end of someone's loaded shotgun of subjective morality. No. We need a source of morality that is higher than us, right? We need a giver of morality who is above all. We need a way of life that comes from above all of us. One that we can all appeal to, and that person is Jesus. Jesus comes from above all and is above all. Look at verse 32. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets a seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the spirit without measure. The testimony of Jesus comes from his existence in heaven with God the Father. And he was sent by God the Father to earth to save us and to show us what it means to live in the kingdom of God. And he is the only one who can give the Holy Spirit without any limits. And that's why we are to worship him. Not simply because it makes sense but because we were designed specifically for that on purpose. It isn't just a good idea to put our faith in Jesus. It is the only hope we have in our life. John the Baptist recognizes his inferiority compared to Jesus, and he willingly laid down his ministry to lift up Jesus above his own. He let his disciples go to follow Jesus. He glorified him and deflected praise to him whenever he could. And in these passages, we're shown what it is meant to decrease, what it's actually meant to decrease and for Christ to increase wherever he could. It's not about doing more and more. The Christ-like life is not about doing more and more. It's about giving over more and more of your life to Christ. You can't do more. You just have to give up more to Jesus. As we finish off looking 
at this section of scripture. It's the last part of the passage that's sobering for me. Look at verse 35. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. This is the only time in the book of John where the word wrath is used. And it doesn't refer to a fleeting or temporary wrath. It's a slow, long-lasting wrath that is marked by God's patience for mankind. He has given us time to surrender. He's given us time to surrender our lives to him. And if you have not surrendered your life to Christ, along with John 3.16, friends, this passage is for you. If Jesus isn't the Lord of your life, the wrath of God remains on you. Your morality cannot save you. Your works cannot save you. Your general belief in a God cannot save you. It is only through the life, death, and resurrection, the work of Jesus Christ, that we are to be saved. He is the source of our morality. He is the source of our life. He comes from above and is above all. He must increase, but I must decrease. That line there, he must increase, but I must decrease. There's a word for that. It's called sanctification. It is the general process of becoming more and more like Jesus. And we don't do that by adding things and filling things into our lives, by acquiring things. We do it by giving up more and more of who we are so that we can be filled with Jesus. If you do not know Jesus as your personal savior, today is that day to make that decision. To turn from a life of exalting yourself and to an eternity of believing in Christ. To turn from an eternity apart from God and to turn to a life that exists eternally in Christ. To live eternally for him. Accept him as your savior and he will do all the work in your life. And that is also a message for us as long-term Christ followers. It is still not about you. It is all about Jesus and the work that he does in your life. As believers, we need this reminder too. That we don't need to add anything to our salvation in Christ. It's not about becoming a better Christian. In fact, it's basic math. 
When we decrease, Jesus increases. When we're pursuing Christ, the things of us matter less and less, and Jesus matters more and more. Jesus will increase in your time, in your finances, in your focuses, in your relationships, and your relationship with Jesus will deepen more and more as you surrender your life to him. That's the good news. I don't want to do this life with me leading it. I will fail. I will mess up. I certainly don't want to be my own source of morality. I know how dark my heart can get. And I know how beautiful Jesus is. And I need him. And I could probably give you some application to this text. Well, as a Christ follower, what should we do next? Right? Application is very good. It's good to know how to take this passage and what to do next. So here's my application. I want you to pray today and ask God where he is showing you to decrease in your life so that he can increase. And that's going to be better than any sort of application I can give you to this text. Pray today and ask God where he is calling you to replace the time that you already have dedicated to you and where he wants you to use it more to exalt Christ. At home, one thing that we've started is reading from the New Testament every single morning, just a chapter a day. It's really neat. If you go Monday to Friday, do you know how many days there are in a year? About 260 to 262 days in a year, Monday to Friday. Do you know how many New Testament chapters there are? 260. If you just read one a day with your family, with your kids, by yourself, and you replace that time with the time of Jesus, you will decrease and Christ will increase in your life. Sometimes we make it out to be harder than it has to be. But pray, go home and pray. Or even after the service right now, just take a couple of minutes and pray and say, God, where are you showing me that I need to be less about myself and more about you? Is it serving in this church community? Is it giving more control of your finances to God? Is it giving control of your finances to God? Is it dedicating more time during the day to meditate on his word? Seek God, and I guarantee you, he will show you, right? The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So if you want wisdom, fear the Lord. Seek him and put him in charge of your life. That message is for you if you are not a believer or if you've been a believer all your life. Jesus must increase in our life. Ask him to decrease the importance of your own life for the sake of increasing Christ.